When we founded the company, we thought, obviously, we have to do an angel round, right? This was not something that we considered being an optional. For us, it was quite logic. If we start, for start a startup, you have to raise an angel round. Because here in Berlin, where we are, that's basically what you're taught. So that's actually what we did. We went around and we started trying to look for angel investors. But the experience about around looking for, for the capital basically led us to proactively decide to bootstrap because... We found it was frustrating looking for capital because people, the angels that we spoke to, the vast majority was just not able to see the potential. The majority were men. They did not feel comfortable talking about the product. They weren't able to focus on the numbers. A lot of them asked us, is there even a market for something like this? Or I thought it's half of the world's population, man. Several days a month and it's not optional. It's not like you can choose not to have your period. It's just there. And of course there's a market. Yeah, there's no innovation. It's a huge market. And, but investors weren't able to see this. Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to Mission First, the podcast to get inspired and to learn from successful entrepreneurs who are building a sustainable future for our planet and its people. I am Gilles Toussaint, your host and the founder of GT Impact, a growth and digital marketing agency working only with companies making a positive difference in this world. Everybody tells you you should raise funding as a startup, but is it true? Is this the only way? Well, it's not. And actually, there are many cases where raising funding is actually a really bad idea. And bootstrapping your startup instead would be much smarter. But how do you bootstrap your startup? Of course, you like to avoid taking money from investors to be able to stay in control of your own startup. But how can you do that? What are the other alternatives to fund your company at the start? Should you do a crowdfunding? Which one and how do you grow fast if you rely only on your own cash? Today, I'm talking to Cathy Ernst, co-founder and CEO of Ushi. They sell innovative consumer products for the needs of women. They've entirely bootstrapped the company. They started two and a half years ago and they already have more than 100,000 customers and they make several million euros of revenue. We can say they grew very fast. They have an exceptional company culture, completely flexible, They work without working hours, and both co-founders are also parents combining entrepreneurship and raising children. Cathy was very kind to share with me a list of do's and don'ts about how to bootstrap a consumer product company. So this is what we are going to focus on today. Fasten your seatbelt and let's go. One small comment before we dig into this episode. This podcast is like a masterclass with long episodes where we talk in detail about the challenges and learnings of every guest. But if your time is limited and you still want to get advice about growing your business and having a greater positive impact on this planet, I've just created a best of series with a special format. 10 audio episodes between 3 to 10 minutes, shorter than a coffee break. They are only hands-on advice shared by the guests of this podcast. You can receive these best of episodes by signing up for my newsletter in which I also send a text summary of the do's and don'ts shared by each guest after every episode. So if you want to get these condensed and useful tips for and from successful entrepreneurs with a sustainable mission, just go to my website, gtimpact.com, or find the link in the description of this episode and sign up for the newsletter. Cathy, thank you very much for being here today. How are you? Thank you, Jill, for the invitation. I'm fine. Thanks a lot. Maybe let's start. You are the founder of Ushi. Do I pronounce that correctly? That's right. That's the name of our, let's say, legal entity. But beneath Ushi, we have two consumer-facing brands. One is Ouya, which is our brand for period underwear and some maternity products. And then we have a second brand called Ida's Place, which is our product range for incontinence wear. So for people with bladder weaknesses. And so one company, two brands. What's your mission? What's your mission as a company and uh, is it different than your personal mission? I think they're quite interlinked, actually. So, no, our mission is to very generally to empower women to basically leave their lives the way they want to and to not and to find products that help them do that. Lots of areas of female health and female needs are under-researched, under-financed and under-serviced. There's lots of innovative products missing. And when this occurred to us, we decided to start introducing some into the market. And yeah, through these products themselves, we want to empower women in, in leading, let's say, their fullest lives and that they choose for themselves. But on the other hand, uh, the products offer us a big space to also communicate about the needs of women 
and challenges that women are still facing today in our society. And so we use the products to be able to be given spaces like this podcast or <laughs> other media outlets or Instagram to communicate about yeah, the needs and the demands of women and therefore foster female empowerment even further. Fantastic mission. You're the first one who is so focused on that part, so I'm really happy to talk about this today. <laughs> Talking about the size and the, the stage of the company, uh, at which stage are you right now? You told me you are about a bit more than 20 people, is that correct? We are, I think, 22 today, <laughs> but we're just hiring, so we'll be over 25, I hope, in like the next two months. And uh, revenue-wise, you are like over 100,000 customers and seven digits. Yes, that's right. Very, very fast growth. But let's start with the beginning then. Like, how did the company start? Like, how did you decide to start that company with your co-founder? How did you meet? How did you come up with the idea? What were the first mm -hmm. steps? My co-founder and Christine and I, we've been very good friends uh, for a very long time. So when we founded the company, we were already friends for over 10 years, good friends. And we were both working in very corporate. I was working as a management consultant um, with McKinsey. And she was working in several big fashion uh, players. The last position she had, she was running several purchasing departments at Zalando. So we were both in good corporate jobs and demanding corporate jobs. And we liked our work. But as we had our kids, I have three kids, she has two. We realized the struggle that uh, many people still have here in Germany about combining challenging work environments, corporate work environments, and um, at the same time being, let's say, an active parent and participating in your kids growing up. So we'd often talk about how do we get out of that? How can we have a cool job but see the kids <laughs> rather than having to decide between one or, one or the other? And during that time, I encountered period underwear. So I was at a dinner with some girlfriends and we were talking to each other. And one of them suddenly said she'd found this really cool thing from New York. It was completely amazing. And she'd found period underwear in the US. And I was very intrigued and I wanted to buy some because I thought this is really awesome. Uh, I want to try that. And I realized that I couldn't buy it here in Germany. And for some kind of reason, the next day I got up and I was like, hey, you know what? I'm just, I could do that. I could bring this product to Germany. And that's how it started. And Christina was one of the first people I reached out to about it because on the one hand, one of the departments she ran at Zalanda was women's underwear. So she's an expert in regular women's underwear <laughs> without a membrane. And on the other hand, I had always had the plan in the back of my mind that if I ever do something by myself, I'd really want to do it with her. And I said to her, look, I need this information, but could you maybe consider doing this with me as well? And luckily, after a few months of throwing around some numbers, she said yes. What is the benefit for a woman of the product as a period underwear? I think in general, there's just much too few, or there's too few period products, right? This is a topic which is, influences basically half of the world population several days every single month. So it's a very often occurring need. And basically for years and years, there's only been two products, which is throwaway tampons or pads, sanitary pads. And just the fact that there's so little innovation in there basically screams that there's got to be more. There's so many different types of women. There's so many different types of periods. Some are very long, some are very short, some are very strong, others are weak. Very Many women have pain, others don't. It's very versatile. But because we communicate so little about the topic, <clears throat> there's so little innovation in the market. And I think what period underwear does is, is for many people, it offers a very good solution, but it shouldn't be the only one and it isn't the only one. We need a lot more different products. But to be specific about ours, so the one thing is, it's of course very easy, right? You put on underwear just like you put on any type of underwear and you start your day and you wear underwear anyway, so now you're just wearing a different underwear. You also don't have to insert anything into your body. This is something that less and less people want to do, that they don't like to having invasive products. It could be cultural reasons. It could be health reasons. There's all kinds of reasons why people don't want to do that. And it's also um, good if the, if the vagina has fluid regularly and isn't dried out, basically, for example, by tampons. And the third reason is obviously a sustainable one, right? And the average woman uses about 12,000 tampons in the course of her life, and they take years to decompost. And very many of them decompost into microplastic because there's plastic around. There's plastic around every single tampon that's packed up in plastic, and there's plastic on the outside, a lot of them. So it's huge amounts of waste that are being created all over the world. And obviously, a product like ours, which is washable and reusable, reduces waste by a lot. That's something I had no idea about and that's a very good point and uh, I, i can completely see the the benefit for the woman and also like the sustainability reason and it's yeah the market is huge in any case as, a, as an yeah. entrepreneur in that case because you're really solving 
the pain. Let's talk about the parts that like you sent me the, this list of do's and don'ts, because what was mm -hmm. you know, particular about your company is that you bootstrapped it from the start mm -hmm. on. And so you sent me four advices. So let's start with the first one, which is don't take anything as a given. So can you iterate on that? I think, like you said in your introduction, when we founded the company, we thought, obviously, we have to do an angel round, right? This was not something that we considered being an optional. For us, it was quite logic. If we start, for start a startup, you have to raise an angel round. Because here in Berlin, where we are, that's basically <laughs> what you're taught. So that's actually what we did. We went around and we started trying to look for angel investors. But the experience about around looking for, for the capital basically led us to proactively decide to bootstrap because we found it was frustrating looking for capital because people, the angels that we spoke to, the vast majority was just not able to see the potential. The majority were men. They did not feel comfortable talking about the product. They weren't able to focus on the numbers. A lot of them asked us, is there even a market for something like this? Or I thought it's half of the world's population, man. Several days a month and it's not optional. It's not like you can choose not to have your period. It's just there. And of course there's a market. Yeah, there's no innovation. It's a huge market. And, but investors weren't able to see this. And what happened back then, now, I under, now after having read a lot more about the challenges of female founders and especially around female-centric products, I understand a lot more now about what actually happened there. It's quite normal for women to be asked very, let's say, risk-focused questions when they pitch to investors. Men are often asked questions about potentials and growth and chances, and women are asked questions about risks and challenges and potential pitfalls. And this is basically what happened to us. Plus, we had the challenge that we were talking about a product which none of these people were going to use and maybe even felt comfortable Like several said, like, I have to talk to my wife, my girlfriend about this first. Whereas they may invest in, let's say, oil rigs or some kind of super advanced technology, which they're never going to use themselves. But they felt uncomfortable because it was a female topic. And this is quite a typical situation. But at the time, we didn't really understand what was going on because we thought this is really weird. We have 10 plus years McKinsey, 10 plus years Orlando, super experienced females raising with an idea with a huge market. What's, what's happening? Like, why is this so difficult? And Yeah, after a while, we just thought this is, is not really worth our time. And the numbers were really good because since the beginning, our numbers have been very successful. So we decided to... So when you say your numbers, company. sorry to interrupt you, like when you say your numbers, does it mean that when you were looking for an angel round, we were already like selling something? Yes, we were already selling something. Yeah, I'll take a step back. We did the market entry with a crowdfunding uh, campaign. But this was not because we actually wanted to fund our company like that. It was more because we wanted a proof of concept. So we developed the product and to buy the first load of materials that we needed and to buy the people who, who sewed the products, we needed to raise capital. And we decided to do that via a crowdfunding approach. So we used a platform called Kickstarter where you can do reward-based crowdfunding. That means that people give you an amount X and for that they get a product, which though is shipped to them later than they are giving you the money. So you can work with the money before they get the product. And we launched a Kickstarter campaign, which ran for one month. And our goal was to raise 10,000 euros. And in the first day, we raised 15,000. And we did this without buying, like paying any paid marketing. You didn't use any PR before. agency or anything? No. Mm -mm. So the, this is one of the things where I started understanding that, I, that not necessarily everything people tell you is a given. Like people were saying to us, you can only run successful crowdfunding campaigns if you invest about half the money you want to Uh, raise in marketing to create awareness. And I was like, then that's not really worth it because the whole idea is that I'm trying to get money to do something. Sure, I want to build a crowd, but I also need the funding in, my, in our case. So we decided to go a different way. We spent the entire summer before we launched just running straight through Berlin to every event that we could think of, any dinner that we could possibly get our foot into, calling any person we knew, going around telling people what we were doing and getting people excited about it. And it all culminated in this one day where suddenly everyone was so hyped up about this thing that was coming and they'd passed it on to some relevant bloggers that were online that, that talk about either female-centric topics or about sustainability topics. And there was suddenly a wave of people like sharing the information that we'd gone live. And out of nowhere, we had 15,000 uh, euros the first day. And how, so you went around in Berlin, like talking about the product at that time. Mm -hmm. Was it the only thing you were doing or did you already have a, some kind of a landing page to, or were you gathering email addresses at least to, to be able to, to get back to these people, the people who were excited? Yeah. So we had a very simplistic website where you could sign up, but not a lot of people did. 
be quite frank. What we did already do, though, is we started our Instagram channel. And we started that about three or four months before, and we did stories basically every day. The story format had just been introduced, I think, or hadn't been around for long. It had been around half a year or something in Instagram. And so we started um, doing stories every day. I didn't even have Instagram before, right? I downloaded it so I could start our channel. Like, I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> so we started doing the, the Instagram stories. And people liked our stories. And for example, during our Kickstarter campaign, we had several, like we decided we needed like something to keep them interested every single day. So we did a book club and we said, we're going to introduce our favorite books, one book a day to keep like people attached and involved. And also they would watch our stories because they thought the books that we were introducing were interesting. And at the same time, they would get an update on how the campaign's going, on what they can share and so on and so forth. And it all fed into one another. But like I said, this was a way that we got our first capital, but it wasn't our intention for that to be like the entire financing of our business. The idea was to get a proof of concept, show that there's a market out there and then go and raise capital. So we'd had this hugely successful crowdfunding campaign. How much did you raise? 50,000 euros. Yeah. So that was good. That was enough. It was enough that we could also start a second product development already. So new styles. And not only produce the ones that we wanted to, but also start product development on new ones. And then the day the, the crowdfunding campaign ended, we launched a website where you could carry on buying, but full price, right? You didn't get the reduced price from the crowdfunding campaign anymore, but it was still like a pre-order, right? You knew you weren't getting the product shipped. The products would be then shipped December, January. And with all this in the back, we went to look for investors. So we knew that we were onto something. Like we knew that there, there was a market there. We knew that this was interesting. And that's why we dared, I think, to take the leap. That Even when the investors then said, or when we found it so challenging to find investors, that we dared to say, no, come on, let's try this all by ourselves. Because the numbers are indicating that we might be able to. The first thing is, it's really like great to see how you used Instagram and your stories and that you dare to actually mm -hmm. do that. Do you remember, for example, how many followers you managed to raise during that summer before you launched the crowdfunding campaign? I think when we launched the campaign, I'd have to look because we did updates on it, like on we did posts on it. But the I think when we started the campaign, it was around 700 or something. And I think at the end of the campaign, we were at like 3,000, like that would be a guess. So it was quite a few people, but like, uh, but definitely enough to fund what we were doing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, but very engaged people as well, because 3,000, it's not nothing, but it's not super high no. either. But I think the, the fact that you were telling your stories every day, all these like books providing value, where like it's a proof that then you managed to get the people excited and engaged enough to be behind you when you started. Yeah, for a very long time, like the first few months and afterwards, we had 40 to 50% of our followers would watch our stories. And a normal value is like 10, right? So we just had this, we had this hyper-engaged community and we still do today. We not 50% watch it anymore. We have 70,000 followers now, but not 50% of them watch it every day. Thank God, otherwise I'm <laughs> a bit nervous every single day. But still, I mean, it's still thousands and thousands. It's still over, um, far over 10% that watch our stories. If an entrepreneur wants to start doing that tomorrow, mm -hmm. I think the first thing they're going to ask me, but what were you talking about every day? Yeah. Lots of people also say to me, I have a product. I mean, who's interested in my product every day? And I think this goes down to fundamentals of storytelling, which is essential, I think, if you're building a brand, especially if you don't have a lot of capital, which is what is the story that you're selling to people which they want to associate with the brand? And this can be completely different things. It can be completely about the product itself. It can be about you as a person. It can be about a societal issue. There's always something about you or what you're doing or the way you're building the company or the work concepts that you have or the location that you're in. For example, are you super rural, right? So you tell a story about how you build a startup in the middle of the countryside and that's your story. And it doesn't matter what you're selling because the story that you're telling is how you're building up a startup in the middle of nowhere. Or is it that you're working with people mm, that come from socially, especially diverse backgrounds? Again, it doesn't matter about your product. You're talking about like special things about your company. Or are you testing new ways of collaboration? Do you have special communication methods? So I really think every single startup has stories to tell, which are valuable. You just need to find out, like, what's the thing for us? It was the top. I mean, the reason also why we did it was because we knew it was a trust-based topic with us. So we knew that people needed to get to know us to trust us with this very intimate topic. So that was another reason why we knew the stories were the right format for us. And it was like, what are the topics that we can tell, which we are somehow, which our position is specially relevant to be able to tell them. And when there's always new information and stuff happening so that it stays interesting. 
and like topics around female empowerment, female founding, founding as a mother, combining family and business, the whole topic around the taboo of periods. So we have a lot of stories that we tell really. And basically every day something happens in, in one of those areas that that you can talk about. I really love to see that like you were telling all these stories and that it actually worked because I really agree mm -hmm. with you. Like you as a founder and you are in B2C as well, like you're using Instagram. I think it makes total sense that you're not so active on LinkedIn, mm -hmm. but whatever you're using LinkedIn or Instagram, you have a story to tell and you can use, as you said, the background you're in it, you know, everything you like or you don't like, everything that moves you is uh, a good way to engage with people who might engage with your products after because at the end of the day this is typical branding yes it's typical branding but you bring up a very good point it's not necessarily it's not necessarily for everyone so i think the difference between b2c and b2b is completely relevant concerning like which channel are you using and what are you telling like you need to it needs to somehow fit to what you're doing. And like I said, for us, trust, for example, was a huge issue. And that's why we knew that we needed to also show our faces because we needed to be present for people to trust us with this. My husband, on the other side, he also built up a company, not completely bootstrapped, to be quite fair, but they never showed, or they very seldomly showed themselves because it's a sports company. It's about events. They grew up their following by creating like cool videos and sharing videos in all kinds of areas. And that's what got people excited about them. Yeah, but I still believe that in B2B right now, you have to do it as a founder. If you don't do it, that's a massive mm -hmm. mistake for me. In B2C, I think it's not a must. But when you do it, if it's something you like to do, you should do it. Because I think even if you're in sport, like you, are, you, are, you have ways to do it. And I've seen some founders who start to include it, to sell it. Sometimes not even to increase their brand, to empower their brand. Sometimes you can even do it on LinkedIn, even if you're in B2C. Mm -hmm. And yes. if you don't feel like doing it on your Instagram account where you have hundreds of thousands of followers, I can imagine that. But at least what I always say is you should do it at least on LinkedIn. The reach you have on LinkedIn right now is just tremendous. And you can mm -hmm. tell your story as a founder about your brand on LinkedIn. And if you have a product that is B2C, it will reach out to some people on LinkedIn that will actually want to discover your product. Yeah, I think, the, I think LinkedIn is especially relevant if you're looking for capital, because my experience is that investors like to look on LinkedIn to see like how much traction do you have there, what are the stories that you're telling and so on. So definitely people looking for funding, I would definitely recommend that you build up a good like LinkedIn profile and voice your opinion on different topics that you're interested in. Or if you're looking at going into a career as a speaker, for example, or stuff like that, there's lots of reasons to use the different things. But I think because when you're founding a company, right, time is of the essence, you have none. So you really need to decide what are you investing your time in. You should invest it in what you think is most valuable. And also, of course, for us, it was important that besides the business side, we already knew that we wanted to be empowering people. And also that is something that Instagram is, of course, fantastic for, because we have people watching us now every single day about how we build up our company, how we do, you know, manage things with our kids, how we grow, how we're building the culture of the firm. And we get messages every single day of several people saying how we inspire them to change something about the way they're living. So it's the channel that helps us fulfill, let's say, the mission at the same time beyond the product. And that's also really helps you to attract employees. I'm sure it's not a problem for you now yes, when you're yeah. least, like it's people are coming to you. You don't have to put ads anywhere. Yes, but not men. Like we have a big problem because all ah. 22 people are women. I really want to hire men. Like in your team, was the percentage of men and women? We have no men, zero. And also the new hires, since I think about a year, we are actively trying to fill the positions with men. And there's just no men applying. What's your stake on that? Because we always talk about diverse teams. So there, there are many companies where actually it's 99% men. Yeah, but that's a huge issue. That's a huge issue. Like we are losing out on a lot of potential as a company because we only have women. Like diversity, gender is only one dimension. So we have different types of diversity within our company on different dimensions, people from different cultures, people from different religions, people from di different yes, countries, heritages, sexual orientations, statuses of life. It's like we have all kinds, but what we do not have is, is men. And I think that's a, huge, that's a huge flaw. And we'd definitely be better at making our decisions if we had some. So it is a priority for me, but they just don't, like they don't, just don't apply. So that, for example, if you found a startup, you have to raise an angel around. So it's pretty clear right. now. Yes. So that, and, and I think it applies to all kinds of things like the crowdfunding campaign, like you have to spend half of your goal in marketing. No, you don't. 
You can think of different ways. You have to take an angel round. No, you don't. You can think of different ways of doing it. You have to, I don't know, invest 40% of your um, revenue into marketing for new. No, you don't. There's different ways of doing things and you can be bold enough to at least challenge the existing if there's a good reason for it. Like you don't need to pick every battle. Why? Like you can learn a lot from people. But if you think there's a loop way into doing things differently, it's at least worth giving it a try. Oh, and also the whole thing about what really always ticks me off is there's a lot of um, very popular like startup advisors that say, oh, when you found a company, you have to work like 120 hours a week <laughs> and you have to work the entire weekend and you're know, like all nighters, you're pulling all nighters the whole time. No, you do not have to. Like you can. If that's something you want to do, go ahead. You're like, feel free, knock yourself out. That's great. But if you can't or you don't want to, you do not have to. You can found companies around other things, like around spending time with your kids, with your partner, with other relatives, with a hobby, with an activist role that you have, with a political role that you have, whatever it is. It's, uh, that's one of the cool things about founding a company. You get to choose what the rules are of your engagement. And as long as you are bold enough to say, these are my rules, and if one of my rules leads to the fact that this might not work, then maybe it won't work. But then that's okay. And that's the way we said. We said we want to build this company around our needs, as, especially as mothers, that we want to partake in the raising of our kids. And if it doesn't work with us raising the kids at the same time, then that's just not the way. Then we'll just do something else. But I think you should do take the time and think about what are my rules for this engagement? What are mine? Rather than thinking, oh, if I do this, you're like, I'm definitely not going to be able to see my friends, see my families, spend time to do sports, be healthy, because it's just not true. You choose the rules. Let's talk about that because I love this. How did you do in that case, I think, to align yourself with your co-founders in order of how you, you want to work? How do you do if one starts to work 80 hours a week during three months because he really wants to? How do you deal with the other one, like working only 30 hours, for example? So how, what yeah. was your experience so with I that? Think the, yeah, so I think this discussion starts a step before, and that is how do you choose your co-founder? And I find that people very often choose their co-founders based on capabilities. So, for example, I can't code. I need someone who can code. I'm going to look for someone who can code, for example. And I think that is not the right way to choose a co-founder. You should choose your co-founder completely based on values. Is this a person you want to be locked in a room with for two days over some Excel sheets, talking to each other? Is this someone that you can fight with and make up? Is this someone that you, can, that you have so much respect for or can develop so much respect for that you can put them over your own ego, right? That's the kind of person you need as a co-founder. Now, when you reach that point, it doesn't matter who works when or how. It literally doesn't matter. What's important is that the responsibilities are split up between both parties or three parties or however many people there are. And if that person takes care of that area, it doesn't matter how much time they take. It doesn't matter how many hours they need. It's the same, and it's, I think I learned a lot about this due to my job with McKinsey, because there, of course, as well, it's the same thing. You can literally work the whole time. There's always stuff to do, and lots of people do. Lots of people pull all-nighters there all the time. I never did. I stopped working at 8 o'clock in the evening, and I went to my hotel room, and I did some yoga, read a book, slept or whatever. <clears throat> I didn't work at the weekends either. And lots of people say, you can't work at McKinsey. Like, yes, you can. I did, because I knew that this was important for me to be healthy and for me to be sane. I'm just really efficient and was quick at the stuff that I did during the day. And no one ever cared because I got my stuff done. Of course, I didn't tell anyone. I wasn't <laughs> yeah. sitting there saying, oh, by the way, I'm always going home and I'm not working at the weekends. I just got my shit done. And I installed rules, for example, like that we'd always do team dinners at eight because I also need food. Food's really important to me. So I said team dinner at eight. And then after that, everyone who still needs to work can work in their hotel rooms, which is a completely normal thing to do. But I was just finished. I was done. But because we weren't all sitting in the same room, it wasn't like an uncomfortable situation. No one was looking at each other being like, why is Kati gone and we're still here? Um, so it's about splitting up the responsibilities clearly between the people and then having the trust and the love and the compassion to just let it go. And as long as everything's getting done, it doesn't matter if someone's using 80 hours or 10. On the other hand, of course, if it does get too much, and this is something that Christina and I have always done a lot, is that we're always in very close contact about like, how's the level of stress for each of us at the moment? Like, are you okay? How are you feeling? How are you doing? And if we realize that one of us or both of us are too stressed, we start, to, we discuss, okay, what can we do? What are the things that we can do? What are the topics that we can move? What are the things that we can change? 
And one thing, for example, that I introduced about three quarters of a year ago, or half a year ago, I think, is a meeting-free Wednesdays for myself. Like on Wednesdays, I don't accept meetings because I realized I needed time to think. Like I didn't have enough time to think because every single day I'm literally going from one meeting to the next without a break and then I go off and see the kids and then it's nighttime. So I introduced meeting-free Wednesdays and my, my calendar's just blocked. It's just blocked. Like no one can access a meeting on Wednesdays. And this was really important for my mental health. And Christina decided to do the same thing. And it's a really good thing for us. Like we realized this is really healthy for us because I realized it was too much. So we introduced this. And yes, maybe some projects now take longer. I don't think so, but maybe they do because this day is missing to discuss it. But basically the team just takes care of itself. They carry on with their stuff. They sort around their appointments around that day. And they know, of course, that if something happens that day, they can reach me or access me. Yeah. And on a practical level, I guess one important thing you mentioned the difference, like you know, values and like being efficient mm-hmm. and, and not caring about how much the other one work for that to work as well. I, I think you have to also be aligned on the deadlines, and the, that's probably related to the pre- when you talk oh, about yes. pressures. Because yeah, you can yeah. say, I think one of the things with the partners I start to work with is to to make sure we align mm-hmm. on deadlines and say, yeah, let's do that by that date, and then we don't care how many hours you do, and at the end of the day, we do it. Is that something that is also very important in that case? Yeah, 100%. So this entire thing of it's not important to me, like when or how you work is also something we completely apply to our employees. Like none of our our employees have a fixed amount of hours that they work across. That's the basis for their salary. But when they do them and where they do them, like I literally don't care. I don't mind if you like working at night, if you like working at home in your bed. Now during Corona, everyone's working at home a lot anyway, but um like that doesn't matter to me as long as you get things done so we completely manage our things around our calendars everyone has to take very good care of their calendars we plan projects three months in advance or something where there's different responsibilities in the team to like block times in people's calendars for different meetings that we have and then of course you have to be present for them so if you don't like working in the mornings then you need to block your calendar until like those are the times i like to be awake and then we look what time is free in people's calendars and we block times about three months in advance. And then we all, that's how we align with each other. But other than that, I don't know who's coming into the office at the moment, hardly anyone is anyway, but, or, or what they're doing at home or if they're traveling and they're working at their parents or that's, uh, that doesn't matter to me. It matters to me personally because I want to know them as people. I talk to them about it because I care about them as individuals, but it doesn't matter to me in my role as their boss. Organization in that case is key and planning. So of course now because of Corona, you, everyone is working remotely. Mm-hmm. But you have an office. Yes, we have an office, but we've had this working principle since before Corona. So we were quite lucky because we'd established all these processes and the, the infrastructure that you need for it and uh, such before Corona. So for us, the whole switch to Corona wasn't so much of a channel in the sense of like our working method. Of course, it was emotionally a challenge for all of us because we didn't see each other anymore, but not on the processes side. Right now, our office is open. So you're allowed to come into the office if you're tested. We supply our employees with tests, but there's only allowed to be two people per room. And we have four rooms plus a meeting room. So eight people can come to the office every day. And we have all the hygiene methods of wearing a mask when you're walking around, opening the windows and so on and so forth. Some people can come into the office now and that is important to us because our whole work base is so reliant on trust. Like trust is the basis of all the work that we do. We need to see each other. Like we've been missing seeing each other for a very long time. Our entire working method revolves around relationships. Like you said, if I communicate with someone in my team, I say basically we align on a deadline, like you said, like we say, oh, that and that is going to be finished, let's say in three weeks. And I expect that to be finished in three weeks. And if the person can't get it done or needs my help in between, I expect them to be looking at my calendar and blocking time with me, like an hour to discuss this with me or a workshop with three people, discuss that aspect, and so on and so forth. But it's in their responsibility. And because of that, of course, the, the people that work in our business, they enjoy that, that they love that. It's because they're so empowered. Like They get to decide so many things about how and when and what they do. And on the other hand, there's lots of people who don't want to do that in their job, right? There's lots of people that just want a, a nine-to-five where someone tells them exactly what to do next to them and that's completely fine but that's not the type of person for this culture that we have here we have lots of people who love like creating and deciding things themselves what was the hardest part about this flexibility and and like uh, culture you have i think the hardest part was at the beginning of the first lockdown the first corona lockdown we hired our first like a co-founder 
to, to launch our second brand, Ida's Place. And things didn't work out with her. And there were some health reasons, but I think a lot of the reasons around why it doesn't work was because we never saw each other. And because our systems are so light touch, because we know everyone else so well, we didn't realize that things were going wrong until it was too late. If you're so disconnected from people, like if you're not with them, you need to really install different systems in your company, how people still create relationships. And I think this has been a challenge for everyone during Corona, but for us, it will always be one because we're all not in the office every day. I think like in a normal state, people are in the office, let's say two to three times a week. I guess that would be like an average. Yeah. And so what are the different things you've done or you've implemented in terms of processes or systems to, to make sure the relationship is maintained? Mm -hmm. So I think the first thing was a lot about awareness. So we've spoken a lot about, about this to our management team that we have by now within the company. I made it clear to them that they need to be taking time not just to do uh, working meetings with the people, which would be normal. Someone's blocked now in your calendar to talk about X, so you talk about X, but to create time to ask how they are releasing their agenda and just like talking about how the people are feeling. I have meetings at the moment with several of my employees where 45 minutes are blocked and half of the time I'm talking to them about personal issues. And that's fine. That's because that's the way it is because there's stuff going on with them and I want to help or be supportive or be there. And on the other hand, on other days, we'll use all 45 minutes from the first but second to the, to the last to work on business. But to be open for that, to not only be work focused in the way you're working with your employees, but to be focused on them as a person. They also, for example, now for the people that are in Berlin and all of our company lives in Berlin, but obviously now some people aren't in Berlin because of the corona situation, that they also meet up and go on walks together. Like we say, try and see everyone in your team at least twice a week, sorry, a month at the moment. Go for a walk or get lunch and go for a walk. Yeah, but do stuff see like that. See each other, yeah. Which we also do. See each other, just be together. And the third thing is the team meetings that we do. We've taken, I think, a quarter of the time of the team meetings we use for going around and every single person in the company says how they feel on a scale from zero to 10. And if they want to, they can elaborate on like why. And most people do. And that, of course, is very personal. Like we have cried together, all 22 of us. We've laughed together. We've animated each other together. It's also something that even though it's digital, it helps us understand like how everyone is, how they're feeling and what's going on. Thank you for the advice and all these recommendations on, on, on how you are actually doing it. I could talk way longer about all these things. And I really love the, the culture of your company and the way you are managing things or leading people with a certain vision for that. Let's go through your do's. The second one yes. you send me is do consider alternative financing option securities. So I guess you were talking about the crowdfunding, but do you have something yeah. else you can iterate on? So crowdfunding is definitely, is definitely an option which you can go bigger than we did. And also depending on your business model, 50,000 might be enough to like completely kick you off. The second thing is there's lots of funds that you can tap into, like state-run funds. Find out what kind of support can you get from the state. We, for example, were one of the first companies to get the new Gründerbonus from the IBB, that's the Investitionsbank Berlin. They give 50,000 euros, which you don't have to pay back. They choose um, startups, which are very young. And there are several criteria. Either you offer lots of new jobs or you're very sustainable or I think it's something to do with AI. But for us, it was the sustainability aspect. Like we showed how our product would contribute to a healthier earth. And then we got 50,000 euros, which was cool and which can also take you a long way. Of course, friends and family, your own savings. Like we did invest our own savings, but we only invested enough to like get the GmbH, which is the legal entity that we mm -hmm. have for which you have to pay 25,000 euros in, in Germany. So that's the money that we invested our, from our private savings. But one thing that we also did, for example, obviously you can take bank loans. And my experience is that by now banks are a lot more open to funding startups as well. So I wouldn't keep them out of consideration. I think lots of people don't, and I don't understand why, because it's just money that you have to pay back, whereas an investor is literally taking a part of your company and even more severely, in my opinion, wants to have a say in how you run the company, which I think is a lot worse than actually taking like part of the financial gain of the company. It's taking part of the control, which is what would especially bother me with the things I'm doing. Have you taken but, any so far? So no. besides crowdfunding and, and grants, have you used anything else? No. But what we did do was after about a year or a year and a half, when our company was really scaling and some of the bills that we were getting, like for the people that were sewing for us, for example, reached six digits, we started getting a bit nervous because we were like, the way it's running, it's good. But what happens if one month the sales don't work for some kind of reason? 
this was pre-corona, but just imagine something with corona happens that kills the internet and then <laughs> online sales don't work anymore. So you're like, what happens then? And then we actually called our bank and we asked them if they could give us an increased credit line. And they gave us an increased credit line in a high six-digit sum. So this is like a really big credit line with a very small interest rate, but it's guaranteed. And so we know that if something ever does happen, that for some kind of reason, bills come in and there's not money on our account, we can go way into multiple six digits into the minus for a very, very small interest rate. And this gave us, of course, a lot of courage to make big bets because we, needed, we could be less scared. Now, we've never touched it. Like we're miles so you, away you are from not paying it, it back, now. basically? Like, no, oh, if it's you only if you, you start use to it, use it. Okay. Yes. So it's, if you don't touch it, you don't pay anything. And if you do touch it at the moment, the interest rates are still ridiculously low. And we knew it would always only be temporary as well, because we knew that our business model was healthy. So it made us so much more brave in making like big bets in like ordering big amounts, because yeah, that's something. And I think that's one of my do's and don'ts that we might come to next. We can come to it now because that's what you were saying. Uh, don't let bootstrapping hold you back from making bold decisions you need to make to become market leaders. Exactly. Yeah. You need to be still allow yourself to be brave. Just because you're bootstrapping doesn't mean you need to think small. You can still dare to think big. You can still dare to be the biggest. You just need to find different like securities or different marketing methods. You need to find different levers than somebody who gets loads of external capital that they can then invest in loads of marketing and they can make a loss for several years because that's exactly what you can't do. But that's the business model for so many brands out there right now. So that's what you're up against. So you need to find a way to A, be much more efficient in your marketing. That's one of the core levers, right? You don't have the money to swamp the market with ads. And on the other hand, make the most out of it, be profitable in what you're doing right from the start. Yeah, and these big bets like for us, the way our financing model works or our business model works, is of course that we have to do cash up front. We sell a product, which is when we're not sold out, it's on stock. And we have to order these products three or four months in advance, which means that our cash is already bound three or four months in advance, which is extremely hard then to grow. If you build a business model, so no, it's the exact opposite of cash up front, because if you build a cash up front model where you get the money before the experience happens, for example, if you build a sports business company where you do sports events and somebody pays you this year, to go to a sports event, a marathon, let's say, next year, then you have cash up front. And you can do, you can work with this cash for a year before the person actually takes part in your event. So for bootstrapping, the latter is a lot more attractive, right? Because you get a lot more money beforehand. Now, in our case, our business model actually is not at all attractive for bootstrapping because we're paying loads of money before the products are coming. But crowdfunding for us was just the first step of working with these like pre-orders. Like until now, we sometimes have like demand peaks like we've had the past three weeks, where demand is suddenly so high that our products are just gone and we're out of stock. But people want our products so much that they are willing to pay in advance still. And we've basically built that into our website that you have a pre-order option. You don't only buy things that are on stock, you can also pre-order things. And then again, we of course have money that we can then work with to scale. I would have thought as well that like, Being sold out is not a bad thing. Probably it's a bad thing on a cash level for your company, but as a consumer, sometimes also like seeing that a company is sold out, it's also meaning that you have a fear of missing out. No, it all plays together, but by now I would much rather be on stock. <laughs> okay. Like um, we've like every single year we have these issues that we just have such suddenly such a demand peak or new like a new plateau that we reach. And because of the production times that we just have, it's just ridiculous. And we've done so much with building up extra material sources, building up extra. So we do, we have backups, but they're, sometimes they just disappear. And at the moment, again, they've disappeared quite a bit. But we have such people are so in love with what we do in our brand. And I think that's the core. You can't afford this kind of stuff if your product and your brand aren't on point. If there's three others doing exactly what you do, but you're the one that's sold out, They're not going to wait for your product. They're going to buy the other one. Like you need to have a product and build up a product that is aspirational that people want to wait for or are willing to wait for if they have to. Ideally, they don't, but um, if they do have to, then. And of course, we try it. You know, we keep them really informed. We point this out. We send them letters. You know, we keep them updated on what's happening. So there's a lot of like logistical work around this whole uh, offering pre-orders, <clears throat> which basically no one does, huh? 
there's hardly any direct consumer and I don't know a single other direct consumer brand which offers pre-orders actually. Yeah, that's the first time I hear it. Mm-hmm. I mean, beside Kickstarter or crowdfunding campaigns. The third do you send me was do think about cash constraints when choosing your business model. Exactly, that's what I meant. That's the whole like, ideally try and do cash up front. Regarding these cash constraints and like these bold decisions, what has been the hardest or what, what were the challenges that you like that you had, you encountered and how did you overcome them? Yeah, no, it's, it's the one that comes again and again when we feel like we're reaching a new plateau and we have to like place orders, which are so astronomically high that we think, oh my God, are that many people actually going to buy this? Like we were shown in 2009 in November. We were shown on the TV show um, Die Hülle der Löwen in Germany, which is the German version of Shark Tank or Dragon's Den internationally. And we were filmed for this show in March. So there was a long time between the filming and the being aired. The problem is, though, they don't tell you if you're going to be aired. So you go to the show, they film you, and then you have to decide if you think it's going to come. Because, of course, if it does come, four million people watched the show at the time. It's a incredibly high amount of traffic and of orders that hit your site but we didn't know if we were even going to be shown on the show but we had to decide literally the day after the recording what we were going to order because the earliest date that we could have been shown is September because the show goes several months so the first possible airing was in September and so we had to decide in March a day after the show are we going to buy like amount of products that we've never bought before because we think we're going to be on the show And that's just, it's just scary. It was scary because it was like taking our bank account down to zero from one day to the other. Is this a good idea? And we, we just looked at each other and said, we think it's going to happen. Let's do this. And you knew you had the credit at the time behind you, if necessary. That's, I think, when we asked for it the first time. (laughs) That's when we asked our bank to place it. And at that time, our numbers were already really big, good. So our, our bank was happy to do the credit line. And what happened then is we should have been aired then in September, but we weren't aired in September. We weren't aired in October. And of course, you've got these huge amounts of stock and you're just like, oh, my Lord, what's happening? And we were actually in the last show of that season. So we were quite nervous. But it happened and it worked and the products were there and people loved it and everything went well. But yeah, that was like one of those big bets and it carries on. It's still like that. Every single time, like we consistently grow, but every single time we have like big growth pushes, it's do we adapt all of our orders that are in the system right now? Do we double them? Do we dare to do that? All right, let's go. I'd love to dig again deeper about how you take the decisions with your co-founders. But again, let's keep that for another episode. One last thing that I want to talk about before we go to the usual question. So two last things I would like to tackle. First, the outsource Part. You told me you are outsourcing as much as you can for the product development and marketing. So can you tell me a bit more about this? Yeah. So this is, I think this was especially true at the beginning. It's changing a bit now as we grow. But at the beginning, when we also didn't know like how our sales are going to develop, we tried to outsource literally everything we could, everything. And with the product development, it's still like that till today. And I don't see it ever changing. It's basically, we had the idea for the product. We developed the membrane. We did that with our own research, Christina and I, over several months. But then basically we had this system of different materials that we knew would work. And we had the underwear, but like, how do you, like, how do you get the one inside the other? Because you can't send that to, to a company and say, please sew this because they need these special sketches and these designs. And then we found the product development agency here in Berlin, a very fantastic one. Also only work for sustainable brands. And What's they work with us. And they, Good Garment Collective. Highly recommended. They're really good at doing like any types of like sportswear or functional wear. And they, they partnered with us in developing it. And they partner with us still today. They develop every single one of our styles with us. So we have the ideas, but they actually do it. Because none of us in this company can sew or, you know, that's not something we do. This is something we outsource. And some people might say it's core. And yes, of course, it is core in some kind of sense. But we completely trust these women. They are like an extended arm of us. But At the beginning, it was important for us to keep that outsource because we could never afford to employ someone that's an expert like that in this. And that's the main problem at the beginning. The people that you need to, for example, take your marketing to the next level are people that you normally can't afford. And so the easiest way to still tap into that knowledge is to freelance it in, in like on an hourly basis. Because you get the expertise into the company, but you're keeping your costs at least lower than if you would employ someone and you're more flexible. 
that if you realize that something's not working, get rid of them. We did this, for example, in with all of our Google-related topics since day one. We have a freelancer working on them. He does it completely autonomously. We speak to him, of course, and these people are also all invited to like our Christmas party. These aren't just people that are just... That we feel like they're part of our company. They're just in a different payment method. <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, yeah, we've had very good experiences with that. That's a good jump for the next subject. Let's talk a bit about growth and, and sales and marketing, in fact, so growth mm -hmm. and marketing in that case. Because you said, you know, that was one of the things that lots of people take as a, as a given. You need to invest like 50% of your budget into marketing. So if you haven't done that, what has been your, your growth strategy, maybe at the beginning, uh, maybe it's a bit different now, but what has been your growth strategy in general? Yeah, so our growth strategy, I think in our heads, was purely performance marketing based, so mainly like Instagram and Facebook ads. But what it actually was in the end was that plus organic Instagram because of our growing community of people plus PR. Like organic? Yes. Yeah. Like we, we until today do not work with a PR agency and I can hardly mention a German magazine or paper that we haven't been in yet. We have had a massive PR reach. At the beginning, it was mostly about the product. Like, wow, this is a completely new product in an area that's taboo, that's interesting. But it's progressed. Like now we speak a lot about female funding and access of females to capital Or we speak about diversity in the founders uh, realm. What can we do? What can we do about female-centric products? Why are no investments going into female-centric products? What do women need? What kind of products do they need? So our topics have, have diversified. And I think that's one thing that we did when we launched the crowdfunding campaign. At the same time, we launched a page on Medium. Medium is like an mm -hmm. online website that you can, that's super easy to use, but it looks beautiful. We did a digital press map and um, PR map on there where at the beginning, we basically said, these are the topics that we can talk about. And then there was a list. I think the list is still on there. You can still look at it. We still use it today, where it says, do you want to talk about founding in your late 30s? Do you want to talk about founding with kids? Do you want to talk about female-centric products? Do you want to talk about, we're the people you need to speak to. Here's a link to all of our pictures. You can download them, no problem. Here's our contacts. And here are two long texts where you can take parts out of it if you want to, where we reflect on our topic. And we've always had so much positive feedback on that from people in the media because they say, hey, we don't need to like look for stuff. Like it's all there. We know who to reach out to. We answer each um, PR contact within, I think, two or three hours. So we're very reliable as, like a, as, as a partner for them. We try and make it like beneficial for both sides. So this like medium press kit that you have, how yeah. do you promote it to the right journalists? How did you get who at, in your place was taking at the beginning, especially before it started to be really like big? Uh, did you have someone who was actually still actively trying to reach out to journalists to say, hey, this is our kit? Or was it just purely organic and then everything kept on rolling as a snowball yeah, effect? We did, but nothing really came around from there. Like from several like befriended entrepreneurs or people that I knew in the scene, some gave me like contacts of journalists lists that they had. And I sent out a gazillion emails, but nothing really came of it. Let's uh, tell you the truth. No, most of it was really organic. And it's And that's the thing you need to like, what is it? Why do we always, because it's still like this week, I don't know, I've had three interviews or something. And I think it's because we stand for something like we have stuff to say, we have statements to make, we have opinions and we voice opinions, which are sometimes not, like I, for example, a year ago, I gave an interview to the Handelsblatt and there was quite a big piece where I was the first person to say, I think VCs should have like a quota of investing in female founders. Like, loads of people don't dare to make those kind of claims because it's not very popular. VCs don't like to hear someone saying that. But I can because I don't right. need their money. But I have an opinion on this and I voice it. And that's what makes you interesting. We can say things without being scared. And uh, therefore, I also think it's our responsibility to say things without being scared because we can and lots of people can't, especially women. But we can. So we always take, I'll take any stage, I'll take any interview, I'll take any possibility that I can to like speak about these topics that are so close to like the mission of our company and of course that trickles down of course to the company as well but it especially goes towards the mission yeah take an edge take an edgy opinion do you know your brand archetype no it's just because I discovered a test that uh, I shared on yeah, LinkedIn yeah. recently uh, and uh, I was curious to know if you knew yeah, but that's another interesting point like our brand as such isn't very progressive right my guess would be like we're more on the rebel side Yes, but like in a very caring way, like people who interact with us 
we are very, we'll take you by the hand and we'll be kind and we will be welcoming and we will not demand a lot from you because you are just one individual in a system of, of things and we will take you by the hand and take you on this journey of discovering a new way to act around your period or your breastfeeding or whatever it is that you're dealing with us. But me as a person, that's a different thing. I can be more more outspoken and I can be more more progressive and nudge I, people a bit. Let's put it that way. I'm just looking at the Brenna archetypes on the website. My guess would be that you're probably somewhere into the mix between like outlaw, like the rebel and like the caregiver and or the lover. Or yeah. I'd be curious, I'll send you the link as well yes, to, to do. do this test. I mean, have a look. Very cool. The last time I did it with two co-founders, the, the, the quiz gives you a, a result of the three mm -hmm. like top archetypes you have. Mm -hmm. And both co-founders are the exact same. That's a good so, thing. So that's a good thing that you see. Okay, <laughs> yes. that, it seems to be aligned. And let's finish because we talked about it, the corona Got issues and the improvisation that we have to do today. Let's finish with the usual questions I ask all the, the, the guests I have. What's the best advice you've been given as an entrepreneur? To think big. Which book would you recommend entrepreneurs like you to read? Or what is one of the latest books you read that you really liked? It's not one of the latest. I think I read about 15 years ago or something, but it's something that shaped the entire way I think about business. It's called Let My People Go Surfing. And it's written by the founder of Patagonia, the outdoor sportswear brand. And it has shaped a lot about how I think about the role of businesses in society and the role of like how you treat your employees. I will add the link in, in the resources of yes. the episodes. It's the first time I hear about that book, but I know the founder of, of uh, Patagonia, not personally, but he's a very inspirational yes. uh, person. So it's uh, my goal would be to have him in the podcast one day, but yeah. Yes, <laughs> go for it. Think big, as you said. What is, on the other side, what, is, what are the, you know, the podcasts, the blogs, the influencers you'd recommend for entrepreneurs? Yeah, um, These are very, I'm going to name some Germany-focused ones. I don't know where your listeners come from, but I really enjoy the Role Models podcast. This is a podcast run by two people, Isa and David, here in Berlin, and they interview female role models. And they come really from all parts of life, but they're normally very successful women. And I've learned so much from every single talk that they've had with them, so I can highly recommend them. They also have an English version, actually, come to think of it. So they have the role models in English and they have the role models in German. Different people, obviously, but highly recommend that. And of course, yeah, on Instagram, I love Instagram as a source for inspiration. Also, when it comes to inspiring founder personalities, everyone needs to follow Leo Sophie Kramer, of course, the founder of Amorelli. He, I think, does a great job on Instagram. And I would also mention Zissi Hardenberg, Francisca von Hardenberg. She founded Bloomy Days back in the day and is now a, also has a bootstrap company now for jewelry. And she does a lot in like the female founding space here in Berlin and has a very entertaining Instagram channel. Tell us one thing about you that I wouldn't be able to find out online. Yeah, no, I actually think I wouldn't want to tell you if it's not online. They're like, I'm by now, I'm quite careful about the things I share and I don't share. I share a lot about like my personal situation because I think it's helpful for other people who may be, especially women who are maybe considering building up companies, which is why I do try and share some personal um, insights into my life, but I'm very careful about it not being too private. I don't think I'd want to share anything that's not online. Fair enough. I completely understand it. And it's very rare that I have that interview founders who are, you know, doing stories almost every day on Instagram. Yeah. So I think uh, <laughs> yeah, you, you, you are sharing enough you of your like, yeah. personal <laughs> opinions or advice or fun facts out there. I understood that you'd like to hire more male employees. Yeah. Can you tell us where people can find you? And any message you want to communicate to our audience? You're not looking for investors, is the question that's saying. Are you looking for investors? But no. Are you looking for employees? Are you looking for where can people can find your products? This is your time yes. to, to share whatever you want with the audience. Sure. So for our bigger brand, Ouya, you can find us under ouya.de, O-I-A.de. Beautiful, short website. I love it. And there under the part about us, we have a job section where you can have a look which job openings we have right now. We're looking for several people, more parts of the organization. I already know we're going to be looking for more as the year progresses. So please look, especially if you are a male identifying person, because we'd love to welcome more men or men at all into our organization. And I promise we don't bite. And the, but also women, we're of course highly welcoming anyone who is also wanting to change the world a bit through business, because that's what we believe we can do and that we are doing. 
And yes, I also recommend anyone who found this interesting to follow us on Instagram. You can find us under It's Me Ouya, but if you write down O-O-I-A, it will pop up and you can find us. And the stories are in German, but I know English people who watch it and send the stuff through Google Translate that they don't understand. So whatever you want, but if you like, you can watch it and there you can see what we do every day. One last question about that. When are you planning to internationalize in English? We will. It's really a, it's a matter of capacity, not of not wanting to, right? It's just we're so busy. Just the needs of the women in German-speaking countries are already so big that we have a lot to do here. Like We are nowhere close to finished here. And coming again to the fact that we build the company around our lives rather than our lives around the company, any form of internationalization would definitely increase complexity of the company and maybe, for example, demand travel. And this is something that we don't want. And right now, can so, people order internationally? Abroad? Yes, in, in within the EU. And so it's more like we, our vision is more like selling more products to the women in the German-speaking countries that, because there's so many things that they need that no one's making rather than taking the brand and internationalizing it because especially in Europe with all the different languages, it's just a very challenging thing to do. But never say never, I'm very interested in also reaching out. Thank you very much for this fantastic episode and for sharing uh, all your thoughts and your advice, Katy. I wish you a very nice day and all the best with your brands. Thank you, Jay. Thank you for your questions. It was very interesting for me too. And good luck today to you too. <laughs> Thank you very much. Bye-bye. If you like this podcast, there are two things you can do that would mean the world to me. The first thing is to sign up for the podcast newsletter. That way you will be notified of the new episodes, but you will also get a summary of the learnings at the end of every season. Plus for each episode, you will get the resources and the list of do's and don'ts that every guest shares with me. And finally, you will also get the opportunity to ask our future guests one question in advance. You can sign up for this newsletter on gtimpact.com. The second thing you can do to be super helpful is to recommend this podcast. For that, you can write a review on Apple Podcasts and share the podcast with your friends, other entrepreneurs, and people trying to build a sustainable future. That way we can all learn together and work on a brighter future for us, our children, and our planet. Thank you very much and see you next week for the next episode. Have a nice day.